Silently gliding over our heads, tens of thousands of satellites are circling the globe, just a few miles above the Earth's surface. An army of 5G satellites beaming down microwave signals to Earth stations all over the world so we can stream movies or play music or chat with friends or order more stuff from Amazon. It's a brave new world in which outer space is the Wild West with corporate fortunes on the line and a compliant FCC authorizing the commercialization of space for a few private companies. How will 100,000 satellites irradiating our atmosphere with new types of radio waves impact people, animals, trees, bees, or any other part of our natural environment? Once again, commerce seems to be getting out ahead of science, but this time the consequences have the potential to be truly catastrophic. This is a story that needs to be told. And this is Green Street. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Green Street. Doug and Patty Wood and our network of scientists, authors, medical professionals, attorneys, whistleblowers, and others all here on Tuesday mornings to help you understand a bit more about what's really going on in the world and how you and your family can live a healthier, safer, and more productive life in this increasingly toxic world in which we live. Today on Green Street, we're very happy to welcome our friend and colleague, attorney Julian Gresser and engineer Ben Levy, to talk about 5G satellites in space and how the FCC is quietly authorizing the deployment of tens of thousands of new 5G-enabled satellites, which they have neither the experience or the legal authority to do. But that's not stopping Elon Musk and other space entrepreneurs and their FCC enablers from going ahead and doing it anyway. It's a fascinating and somewhat scary situation, and it's going on right now, today. So stay tuned to learn more about this. But first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? So I have three really interesting articles and uh, important, really important ones. Um, the first one is entitled, Climate Change Contributed to More Than 70 Natural Disasters Since 2015. This was published in the Watchdog Newsletter of the Public Integrity Group and written by Jamie Smith Hopkins. There's no time to waste in the fight against global warming, and here's one number that drives it home, 76. That's how many disasters and temperature anomalies scientists have demonstrated were made more likely or intensified by climate change from 2015 to 2020, from Hurricane Harvey's unprecedented flooding in Texas to extreme heat that played a role in the catastrophic Australian bushfires. The sobering statistic was in a recent report from the medical journal The Lancet that focuses on the warming climate's impact on our health and well-being. Researchers also pointed to rising deaths from extreme heat and an increasing caseload of diseases that flourish in warmer conditions. Though the federal government was discussing the health risks of a warming planet at least as far back as the 1980s, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention didn't begin to focus on the problem until 2009. That's when it launched a climate program to help state and local health departments safeguard their residents. But the effort has been underfunded from the start. Few health departments are getting CDC assistance, and a decade of political resistance, first from states that would rather ignore climate change and then from the Trump administration, made things worse. 
The Department of Defense has called climate change a threat multiplier. Hearing the stories of people who needlessly died from heat, many in homes they couldn't afford to cool, underscored for us how much it's an inequality multiplier as well. People with less, less money, and political power especially, are often the most affected. This fact reveals a deeper question of justice, the writers of the Lancet piece said. Former President Donald Trump treated climate change like a hoax instead of a crisis, and his administration worked to undo efforts begun by his predecessor. But the CDC's climate program, launched at the start of the Obama administration, didn't make much headway during those years either. Biden has pledged to make climate change and environmental justice a priority. Soon we'll have a clearer picture of how his administration plans to tackle these intractable problems. You mentioned the military, you know, concern about this. There's, there's that video I hope people have seen called The Age of Consequences, mm. which talks about how the military views climate change and, you know, the kind of social unrest and migration that climate change is going to bring and the impact that's going to have. I think a lot of people think, well, you know, I, we can deal with climate change, but it... No, 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 no. no the United we can't. States military is well aware of the security issues involved yeah. in climate change. Yeah, a yeah. threat multiplier, they yeah. call it. And it's, if you have a chance to see this film, Age of Consequences, it is really worth seeing. Yeah, it's, it's really. Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll actually put a completely different spin on this, which is, uh, which is important for you to hear. Okay. What else? Okay, so I have an interesting interview uh, with Judith Enk that Bill McKibben conducted, uh, and it is called The Climate Crisis, and it was published in The New Yorker on January 22nd, 21. Judith Enk has spent her career working on crucial environmental issues. During the Obama administration, she was a regional administrator for the EPA. She's currently a visiting professor at Bennington College in Vermont and the president of Beyond Plastics, a campaign that seeks to engage young people and citizens in what's emerged as one of the biggest environmental fights on the planet. So Bill asks her, plastics has gone from watchword in The Graduate to curse word in our moment. Just how worried should we be about plastic pollution? And Judith responded, very. The effects of plastic pollution are more far-reaching than most people realize. In addition to the 15 million metric tons of plastic entering our oceans each year, scientists have found plastic particles in the most remote places on Earth, from the peak of Mount Everest to 36,000 feet underwater in the Mariana Trench. Microplastics can be found in everything from drinking water to soil to beer to table salt to a cup of tea. In fact, we're all ingesting roughly a credit card's worth of plastic each week. Stunningly, scientists recently found plastics in human placentas. That study just stopped me in my tracks. We know that plastics are literally everywhere, but we don't yet know the full extent of the danger they pose to our health. We do know that plastics are made with a host of toxic chemicals that can interfere with endocrine systems, fertility, and more. And we also know that plastic production and disposal are major contributors to climate change. And Bill McKibben asks, so how does this tie into the fossil fuel industry? And Judith replied, plastic production is the fossil fuel industry's plan B. With the demand for fossil fuels falling due to the increased use of renewable energy, electric cars, and the like, 
The industry is banking on plastics to boost its profits and provide a market for all the ethane created as a byproduct of hydrofacking. And it's important to note that the fossil fuel industry, the chemical industry, and the plastics industry are one and the same, a three-headed monster. The industry is planning a massive build-out with hundreds of new ethane cracker facilities that turn fossil fuels into the plastic pellets that can be made into many products proposed in Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Louisiana, and Texas. Almost all these plastic production facilities would be built in low-income areas and communities of color, continuing our nation's sad history of environmental racism. If they were proposed in more affluent communities, they would never be built. Most policymakers do not know that this is happening. If plastic production continues to grow, by 2030, the greenhouse gas emissions from plastic production will be the equivalent of 295 new coal plants. And Bill's last question to Judith is, how do we bring real pressure to bear? There's a promising piece of federal legislation called the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act that we're suddenly feeling a lot more optimistic about. A key feature shifts responsibility for dealing with plastic waste to where it belongs, the companies that produce it. This concept is known as Extender Producer Responsibility, or EPR, and is required by law in parts of Canada and Europe. The bill also recognizes that we can't recycle our way out of the plastic pollution crisis. We have to turn off the plastics tap and make a lot less of it. Plastics had a paltry 8.5% recycling rate even before China closed its doors to our waste in 2018. The bill would spur innovation and press the pause button on new plastics facilities. The bill bans plastic bags nationwide and some polystyrene food packaging. It also requires deposits on beverage containers known as bottle bills, which have successfully reduced litter and boosted recycling in nine states. But for those who don't want to put all their eggs in a basket held by Congress, I'm a big advocate for what I call the plastics trifecta, a city, county, or state-level law that prohibits three of the most common single-use plastic items that are major sources of plastic pollution, plastic bags, plastic straws, and polystyrene foam, a.k.a. styrofoam. It's a really important first step that helps get some of these non-essential plastics out of our waste stream and our actual streams, while raising awareness and building the political will for more far-reaching action on plastics. In the past two years, both Vermont and New Jersey have adopted the plastics trifecta. The U.S. makes up 4% of the world's population, uses 17% of the world's energy, and not surprisingly, creates 12% of the world's solid waste. This is not sustainable, it is not ethical, and it must change. I have met climate change deniers, but I have never met a plastic pollution denier. Plastic pollution is visible everywhere. The time to turn off the plastic spigot is now. Yeah. That's, that's a really good overview. Yes, it is. I thought it was a great yeah. interview that, that she did with Bill McKibben. Yep. Excellent. Okay, good. Okay, and my final article is, uh, is entitled Biden Environmental Challenge, Filling Vacant Scientist Jobs. And this appeared in AP News on January 30th. And it was written by Tammy Weber and Matthew Brown. Polluting factories go uninspected by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Leadership positions sit vacant at the U.S. Geological Survey's climate science centers. And U.S. Department of Agriculture research into environmental issues important to farmers is unfinished. The rank of scientists who carry out environmental research, enforcement, and other jobs fell in several agencies, sharply in some, under former President Donald Trump, federal data shows. Veteran staffers say many retired, quit, 
or move to other agencies amid pressure from an administration they regarded as hostile to science and beholden to industry. That poses a challenge for President Joe Biden, who must rebuild a depleted and demoralized workforce to make good on promises to tackle climate change, protect the environment, and reduce pollution that disproportionately affects poor and minority communities. Quote, it's going to take a long time to undo the damage that the Trump administration has done, said Kyla Bennett, a former EPA enforcement official who now directs science policy for public employees for environmental responsibility, or PEER, a watchdog group. Bennett said many scientists left as Trump's administration rolled back regulations and undercut climate work, leaving agencies with less experience, a work backlog, and unfinished research. Employment data shows more than 670 science jobs lost at the EPA, 150 jobs at the U.S. Geological Survey, which researches human-caused climate change and natural hazards, and 231 jobs at the Fish and Wildlife Service. At the USDA, more than one-third of staff members, almost 200 people, left the agency's Economic Research Service and its National Institute of Food and Agriculture in fiscal year 2019 after the Trump administration moved their jobs from Washington, D.C. to Kansas City. Not all agencies saw drops under Trump, and the drain of science jobs from USGS and EPA predated him. The EPA lost more than 3,500 employees, 22% of its workforce, over the past two decades, according to budget documents. At the USGS, 1,230 science jobs were lost since 2000, a 17% drop. Priorities change from one presidency to the next. Under Trump, the EPA emphasized cleanups of Superfund sites and shifted away from climate change. But those who experience cuts under Trump say his administration brought something new, intense political pressure on agencies in the way of its pro-industry agenda and willingness to thwart legitimate science. Yeah, that was always, you know, that was always they, a worry. Yeah, you they know? eviscerated, they eviscerated all of these agencies. I remember Judith Ank yeah. telling us how many exactly people were leaving. Right. So this was an interesting yeah. thing. Here's Judith working yeah. on plastics now, but she said as EPA administrator that it's going to take years. She says if he's in for four years, it'll probably take 10 years to rebuild these agencies. If he's in for eight years. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. Yeah, so we there's a chance. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. A great space race is currently underway in which private companies with the help of the FCC and other U.S. government agencies are seeking to grab, deploy, transform, and own outer space for their own private gain, defense, and weaponization. Over the next 10 years, up to 80,000 low-orbit satellites are scheduled to be launched designed to carry 4G and 5G wireless telecommunication signals back and forth to Earth. This race to commercialize space raises many questions, and most of them currently have no answers. There are issues of cybersecurity, of environmental harm, of privacy, of interference with meteorology, and of course, the basic question of who exactly has the authority to say yes to this new use of outer space for commercial gain. To address these and other questions, we turn to attorney, author, and philosopher Julian Gresser, twice visiting Mitsubishi professor at Harvard Law School and the founder of the Healthy Heavens Trust Initiative, and Ben Levy, a technology and software consultant who works closely with Julian. 
We spoke with Julian and Ben a few weeks ago, and Patty asked Ben to start off with a basic explanation of 5G and why companies are racing to put 5G-enabled satellites in space. 5G is fifth-generation wireless technology, and the fifth generation is just a whole amplification of the previous four, including the previous four, you know, moving past them. And a critical, critical part of that fifth generation wireless infrastructure technology are satellites. They're just a, a critical component, as well as the terrestrial component, in moving this fifth generation dimension of wireless technology global, fast, and to uh, all of the people that it can possibly so can I just ask a quick question right here up, up front, and that is that 5G cannot exist alone. 5G always has to have 4G or 3G. Correct. Think of the generations as both ends. So they're including both 3G and 4G, and, and specifically when we speak about fifth generation wireless, we are talking about higher frequencies of communication. Therefore, the satellites are going to use much higher frequencies of communication than have previously been used in previous generations and current generations. And, and what benefit does that have to the, to the user, the consumer, or to all of us here on Earth? That's a great question. So if you could drop in and imagine or remember what it was like with 2G, that was when we had regular cell phones and they weren't really doing much. And then 3G came along, and all of a sudden we could surf the Internet. And like that was a revolution. Mm -hmm. There's a whole decade of that coming out. 4G is when that speed got higher, and so did the frequency. And now we were able to stream video and do conferencing and upload to YouTube. And all of our video social media, the huge social media giants, have been successful because of 4G. And now just imagine and drop into what 5G is going to bring. To the table. So, Ben, we've had satellites in space for a long time. What's so different about this? So, we've been having satellite internet for many, many years in very remote areas of the United States and the planet, really. And they have suffered from two, two aspects of it. One of which is, is the satellites themselves are 23,000 miles above the Earth in geosynchronous orbit. And therefore, there's a time delay called latency between sending the signal up to the satellite and beaming it back down again. And therefore, that latency causes a lot of stress in people and businesses and, and functions. And the other piece is, is that it's very broad space. So the signal that comes from a satellite just spreads over a whole wide, vast area when it's in geosynchronous orbit. Now, imagine bringing those satellites closer and closer and closer and closer to the Earth. And the closer they are, the more satellites you need, and the fact that they now orbit around the Earth and they don't just stay in one place. So you could imagine the grid that Musk and others are, are deeming necessary in order to provide their customers, people on the ground who don't have access to any other high-speed broadband Internet, with decent broadband Internet service. That's the function, at least the commercial function, of the satellite networks, whether they're Starlink or Kuiper or whatever system that they're being put up. 
So that Musk is Elon Musk, of course, and his company is SpaceX. And in his company alone, he's got, you know, over 12,000 satellites that he would like to, to launch, and then Amazon and Facebook and OneWeb, and I think there are more too, right? Correct. Yeah, and that's just from the United States. This is Julian Gresser. Right. You have to understand that other countries, which is part of the larger context here, are jumping into the race, the U.K., Australia, certainly China, Japan, and so forth. So this is another dimension we may want to discuss today. A lot of the pieces of a reasonable, coherent framework exist. The problem is that to date, and particularly under this recent uh, Trump administration, that the FCC at the highest levels has been given a carte blanche to do whatever it really wants to do, and it has seized control, and you could call it operational control, the self-proclaimed lead agency, and effect, essentially making decisions on its own ex parte, which have not only profound implications for other federal agencies in the U.S. that have jurisdiction and missions that directly involve satellites, uh, but and with complete defiance of U.S. domestic law and this body of treaties that have been set up specifically for outer space, but for all the other issues that are involved, and international organizations, uh, world meteorological organization, just as one example, uh -huh. WHO and so forth, uh -huh. complete disregard for the existing apparatus. Right. As if, as if the United States can write the, and five people more specifically, five FCC commissioners, can determine the fate of the planet. Right. So that's what I, that's what I was trying to say, is that there's no oversight. Nobody's telling, you know, nobody is, is controlling what the FCC is doing. That's Not, right. That's right. None. That, and that also, by the way, provides a clue to where I think we may want to go in this interview, is, to, is there a path, a balanced path forward? And the fact that it is so concentrated on five commissioners who will be the first to tell you they know very little about any of this. Uh, all the concerns that we may want to discuss today, none of these people, nor the agency itself, has domain expertise. These people are making decisions that will affect the whole planet. But that's the good news, because the good news is what they're doing is illegal. And there is a sound legal basis under international and federal law to check, to help them gather the, the resources they, they should require to work with other agencies, and in the meantime, pause. Treat this as it was, if you were a business, uh, Doug and Patty, and you had a new product, wouldn't you want to test the product before you expose children and the general public to it? You, you probably would test it, you'd assess it, you'd do a small market survey. Uh, you might have insurance, liability insurance. They're not doing any of it. And so I'm saying, and we're saying, treat it as what it is. It's an experiment by uh, some geniuses, beginning with Elon Musk. He's obviously an extraordinary person, but it's an experiment. Don't make the entire planet pay the cost and assume the risks of your experiment. You've well, got some satellites up in the sky. Okay, let's assess what's happened. Let's assess the risk. In point of fact, and, and in some, we want to pause. 
And the most interesting aspect of the whole story is there is a viable, safe, secure, environmentally protective alternative. And that really is the that is really what people need to come back into balance and consider optical fiber to the premises, optical fiber wired to the premises. And what are the implications and what is the kind of informed choice that optical fiber to the premises offers consumers in this country and all over the world as an alternative or perhaps in balance with a satellite infrastructure? You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guests this morning are Julian Gresser, attorney, author, and philosopher, and the founder and director of the Healthy Heavens Trust Initiative, and Ben Levy, a technology and software consultant who works closely with Julian. So let's go through some of the concerns that that we've got uh, about this, and I'm thinking about your, your proposal to challenge the FCC. If you wanted to organize the concerns... There are eight domains uh, of risk that immediately kind of come to mind. And at the core, the U.S. government and the technical community is very sophisticated about risk assessment. There are all sorts of modalities, methodologies of risk assessment, and various agencies, Department of Agriculture, for example, NOAA, obviously the, uh, the DOD, use risk assessment methodologies all the time. Mm-hmm. The odd, again, thing about the satellite story is it doesn't seem that the FCC has availed itself of these methodologies to address the risks. So what are the risks? There are eight domains. The first, I guess you could call it the most dramatic, is the risk of collisions. And uh, just as a vivid example, in, in January of this uh, last year, uh, two dead satellites almost colli- collided 60 feet prevented them from colliding over Pittsburgh. And you can easily validate how many past accidents there have been that are in the public domain uh, by just looking that question up under wiki. So it's clear that collisions is a major area of concern. NASA has expressed grave concerns about it in a public letter to the FCC. And the issue of debris is connected because there is so much garbage in space, just like in the oceans now, uh, and this, this debris travels at high speeds, that if it hits a satellite, it's extremely dangerous. Julian, let me stop you for a second. I want to ask Ben, how big are these things? Are we talking about, a, a, you know, a basketball? Are we talking about a garbage can? Are we talking about the size of a car? How big are these satellites? The satellites themselves, I believe, are about one meter square until they're deployed. And then, of course, they've got this major TV array that orients to the sun to provide the satellite with power, right? I see. Okay. So the satellites themselves, these are specifically the ones that Musk is launching. Mm-hmm. However, there are dozens more, but they've modularized them into one meter by one meter square modules that they, they can then clip onto each other to make bigger. So the satellites themselves range in size, but the debris, which is already up there, ranges in size from micrometers all the way to second-stage rockets. Wow. And the Kessler syndrome suggests that the level of debris can reach a tipping point whereby it proliferates, cascades, 
and you get what I would call a negative multiplier effect. Okay, so we have a real potential problem with collisions and all the junk that's up there in space. What are the other concerns that you've got about this? The second one is cybersecurity. Cybersecurity has two very powerful dimensions. One is the seizure by either hostile governments or amateurs, hackers, of what's called operational control of the satellites to weaponize them or use them in, in some ways to significantly subvert the existing infrastructure. And it appears that for a whole variety of reasons that we've uncovered, that the satellite slash Earth station infrastructure is extremely insecure and vulnerable, and that this is not just ourselves. This is what the U.S. government and other agencies who are deeply concerned uh, are saying. And so really our petition and uh, other legal work is really, try is really extending a hand out to, for example, the Cyber Infrastructure and Security Agency, uh, CISA, uh, which has a dominant and very important role, which has really been in some sense cut out from the FCC-specific licensing decisions. It is a fact, it appears, and I'm not technical and I certainly don't have access to classified information, but that uh, a skillful uh, terrorist type could seize operational control of the satellite, a satellite or a constellation in, uh, in a rather short order time, and that the fundamental operating premise uh, that the because these uh, satellite software systems are encrypted, they're secure, is invalid. Uh, and therefore, the U.S. government knows that it is highly insecure. Uh, this is in part why we have a special law, the Secure 5G and Beyond Act, and a national plan, the result of 180 days from multi-interagency work, but the experts in the area tell me that they operate in what is called zero-trust architecture. It's fundamentally vulnerable. And meanwhile, the FCC is just blithely signing off on these grant these applications, uh, but no requirement of a mitigation of a cybersecurity plan from the companies or measures to mitigate, and not to mention the fundamental point. Uh, which runs through this whole discussion is there's no insurance, no agreement for indemnification. The fundamental premise is that the public ought to be paying for the satellite experiment, and I call it the public pays principle. Mm -hmm. No insurance company in the world will underwrite the range of risks we're discussing today. They're simply uninsurable. I just wanted to, to make a little point to our audience about the, um, about the fact that these satellites are, are not insured, that nobody's insuring them. But it is actually true that none of the telecoms are insured. The reinsurance agencies like Lloyds of London and Swiss Re, Swiss Re have, uh, have denied them uh, insurance, liability insurance, because it's just a dangerous technology from the research that they have done. It's yeah. an experiment. That's what I'm saying. It's, it, you know, Even go, just, go you know, cell phones and, you know, regular wireless, uh, terrestrial wireless yeah. transmissions. I just wanted to point out that the offices in which they deny these coverages are because they consider contractually that RMF, EMF radiation 
is considered a pollutant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because it's considered a pollutant, it's considered exempt. Exactly. Insured. It cannot be insured against. That's what the insurance companies are using as a way to say we don't identify any harms from RFR radiation. Right. Okay, sorry. Moving on. Okay, I so we got, to go we got collisions, yeah. we've got security. What else is on your list? The third, which we could have a special program all itself, is really the environmental aspects of this, the environmental dangers, the climate change dangers. Mm-hmm. And here there's a, a long list that I can just very briefly note, which has to do with the um, body of international law that really recognizes a public trust in the heavens that uh, it's not as though we're the first people to have been concerned, and there is in a variety of international treaties, whether they be biodiversity or cultural heritage, reference to the law of the sea and so forth. You can't just go up and rape the heavens and treat them as a garbage can uh, and, as, and as a platform for warfare. I mean, nations and enormously able people have thought about this, and so there is a strong argument, say, that the public trust in the heavens is is sacred and uh when we go up to outer space we do it with humility and care for all of humankind and the living living environment and because then there are issues of beginning with all the environmental impacts none of which none of which have been addressed in terms of trees of insects of bird migration on the environmental front there's light pollution so that uh, astronomers who depend on the dark skies uh, are losing uh, financially, economically contracts that they have spent years negotiating and treasuring to do their research are being impaired. Um, uh, And then, of course, there is the effect on the ozone layer uh, and the impact that that has on the aerosol treaty from a legal point of view and effect on climate change. Uh, And then we go to the health effects. Uh, there is not, when we think of satellites, as, as Ben emphasized and you pointed out, we're looking at not just simply what's happening up there in the heavens. The satellites can operate without Earth stations and base stations. And these base stations have, particularly base stations, emit significant levels of uh, RFR, as well as, as Ray Broomhall, attorney in, in Australia, points out that all these uh, electric fields already also have magnetic fields, and one of the big moves is to have uh, wireless power transmission, which is certainly an area that the IEEE has looked at and, and so forth. And then, of course, the impact on weather prediction, uh, which is intimately tied to agricultural uh, security and the like. Now, the key important point is in all these areas, uh, and of course, in term, coming back to the health aspect, these uh, blanket license to millions and millions of the earth, earth stations in the United States means that the telecom companies can place these earth stations wherever they want without any kind of community ownership or buy-in or control or anything. Uh, and what, what, what we're saying is that at the, mo- at the most basic, at least assess the impacts in advance. Look into it. Inform yourself, not ready, fire, aim, but follow the international protocols which say, first, understand what you're doing, understand the adverse effects, lay out strategies to mitigate these effects, 
This is a principle of international law, but also particularly of U.S. law. The National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, makes very clear that what the FCC is doing is what in NEPA language is called a major federal action. You cannot avoid the responsibility of NEPA by disaggregating and issuing these permits piecemeal, one by one, and saying this is not a major action because it's just a permit. Of course it's a permit, but all of them come together. Now, what the FCC has done is they, years ago, basically cleaved out satellites from cover of NEPA by issuing what they call a categorical exemption. A categorical exemption means the agency said, we're not going to bother with assessing any of this or even complying with NEPA. Well, they don't have legal authority to do that, and there's a whole line of cases that says so. And so they are required. They can't do that legally. If Congress passes another law and says they can, that's another matter. But an agency doesn't have authority to say they're not going to follow a federal law. Now, by the way, in terms of the pollution uh, damages, and even more so on, uh, in regard to collisions, which was the first domain of risk, um, the FCC has taken the improbable position. And here, this is so extraordinary that it really, I almost have to sort of speak very slowly so your listeners can absorb what I'm now going to say. They have taken the position in writing as a policy statement that the United States will not be liable under the Outer Space Liability Convention for collisions uh, and damages, which is clearly stated in Article uh, Articles 1, 2, 7, and the like in the, in the Outer Space uh, Liability Convention. The United States will not be liable for harms, which otherwise they would have absolute liability for, because the FCC doesn't have authority to do what it's doing. In other words, it's saying it's a regulatory, not a statutory agency. Mm. And as the FCC has said, they do frequencies, not people or the environment. And so they're saying we really don't have authority or expertise in this area, but we're doing it anyway, that's, and the United States is off the hook. That's pheno- well, phenomenal logic. But, we're not responsible. It's really the most, it must have been written by attorneys. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds Touché. just like it. And, yeah. so, and not very good attorneys. Uh, so we're, but, since, since we're not authorized, the FCC is basically saying, since we're not authorized to do what we're actually doing, we're therefore not not liable for these uh, under these other treaties well, and laws. The United States is not liable. Right. Good heavens. We'd have an interesting situation if a satellite from China collided with one of our satellites and we claimed uh, we want compensation. Yeah, absolutely. Because if we're not responsible on the one end, can we uh, can we use the treaty on the other? Or is, are all bets off at that point? I suppose well, it's really, we'll never know that. And, and Doug, what you're saying is really pointing to the, the real direction. If we walk away from treaty responsibilities sure. and China, for example, sees space as an area of high national security interest, and they have a vigorous space program, we are clearly in a uh, space race and a collision course in a commercial sense. Yeah. But now this comes to the next, perhaps, there are two other last areas to mention. We'll go to the space race, dual technology, dual use technology, and then come to the good news. 
the fact is that most of these products, technologies, software, and data have dual uses, commercial and military. And that poses perhaps the hardest and less noticed problem of this whole story because it's very hard to disaggregate the uses. And the odd question about why are satellites not mentioned at all, not one word in the Secure 5G and Beyond Act and the plan that has just been promulgated a day or two ago, not once mentioned. And you have to sort of ask yourself, obviously these are enormously brilliant and bright people, very experienced. Why, why, since the whole move is to create a wireless satellite infrastructure, how is it the vulnerability of that very infrastructure, of which is, there are many examples, you know, the Natovia virus, malware that the Soviets uh, installed on MERS, shut down the shipping country, company in, in a week. And it was only because they had a server in Ghana that it was able to get back online. I mean, these, it's, these, this is not fantasy. These are real, real, immediate risks. And the satellite enterprise makes it even more vulnerable. Now, on top of everything we've said today, if the technologies and products and service and data are, are dual use, that means all the risks are compounded and point to warfare in the skies. Space is the new cybersecurity frontier, and if all of this is ignored, the chances of space wars as the next frontier of battle grow, go up dramatically. So this is a profoundly serious issue and really does require, particularly around the area of dual-use technologies, oversight by particularly other agencies than the FCC and sign-off before permits, further permits and licenses are issued, particularly by the Defense Department, the Commerce Department, uh, CISA, and, and other concerned agencies. But so what has to be done? Well, sign off is being, second of all, uh, a really intensive look at this dual-use technology problem. And the third is another area, which I used to do a lot of legal work, is export controls. I'm not quite sure at all that there is export control sign-off because of the, it is the very nature of these satellites that they're dual use. If you had export, if they had to comply with the export control laws, it's very problematic. With many of these uh, licenses would be granted. You're talking and about the you're, you're talking about the export of of military uh, export in, of product. Uh -huh. I mean, the ex, this, by putting up a satellite, you are enabling an export of a product, of a service, of software of data, mm -hmm, of technology, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the way the export laws of the United States work, if you re-export, and these are criminal penalties for violation of, uh, and it's not only military, it's a dual use, particularly important in the export control laws. It's as though this whole body of other law, of export control law managed by the Commerce Department, has nothing to do with the area of satellites. Well, has an awful lot to do with it, which shows that one hand is not in coordination with another hand in the U.S. government. The Commerce yeah. Department has a deep interest in these matters, so why would the FCC want to be in close consultation with the Commerce Department, uh, and so forth? So, again, this is a problem that has been, left, has been pushed aside by the Trump administration, where the Biden administration, with all the other 
problems it's facing uh, really ought to take a look at, in which there is an opportunity to bring together a balanced approach at the national level and at the international level. There's one other thing I just, since we're just, you asked me this question, which opened up this Pandora's box of these eight domains, there's some very, very good news. And the very good news is there is a viable, immediate, safe, secure, uh, environmentally protective, climate change-friendly, energy-efficient alternative, which we mentioned, optical fiber to the premises. And this has, the fact that technologically this, this, which, that this opportunity is available, 750,000 miles of ocean <clears throat> cables, now optical fiber, that's the predominant way we get Internet access. Uh, we've already paid for it, going back to President Gore. <clears throat> we, I cite the irregulators, the FCC case, points out the massive diversion of taxpayer money <clears throat> and overcharges of ratepayers to the disadvantage of optical fiber. So this is an infrastructure <clears throat> which is already available, which is particularly useful for the digital divide, which Ben pointed out. And so why is it so important? Well, because it points to allowing not just a few com wireless, satellite companies or wireless companies, but whole communities to regain, which they paid for, control, ownership control, management of decisions in regard to building their own local fiber-to-the-premises infrastructure with locally-owned power communication utilities based on renewable energy. This is something that will be what I call, in a book I wrote years ago, a strategic technology and capacity. It will drive innovation, and it's an area of fertile innovation in the United States today. There's a startup company on the East Coast that has come up with a way to avoid trenching and the permitting and the delays of installing optical fiber to rural communities. If there are roads, you can simply pave them uh, a mile a day, and you can have optical fiber right to the premises. So th this is an area where we ought to be under a policy of neutrality, strongly yeah. emphasizing and yeah. reinforcing our own domestic strategic technologies here, which obviates the entire need for these commercial, for 80,000 or plus commercial satellites. Okay, we need some military satellites. That's the Defense Department, the military's business. But we don't have to blanket the planet with this dangerous and unnecessary infrastructure when mm -hmm. something exists together. Now, the legal issue is that billions of dollars are now being, of taxpayer money, are being allocated to wireless companies and the satellite companies. One satellite company got over $800 million to push products into these rural communities. Well, that's a violation in t on top of everything else of the international trade laws and the subsidy countervailing duty laws. But the point is it should be balanced. Uh, and and as any fair and balanced uh, approach to this would look at the alternative and assess it against what is being so vigorously uh, thrust upon the public without any informed consent. So there's a very good end to the story, at least in terms of where it could be pointing. And it's a question of this kind of interview is so important because it allows people to inform themselves and judge for themselves. 
And, and it's also, a, you know, a very simple supply and demand situation, as, as so many things are uh, in environmental health. Uh, if the public is educated, they're going to demand a safer technology or a safer product or whatever, and these uh, and the industry will supply that. Absolutely, and I, you know, I think a lot of people may think we're talking about something that's going to happen in the future. Uh, ben, tell, talk a little bit about what's out there. I remember you telling me there was a website where you could actually track this, these satellites that are going over our heads. So there are a number of wonderful open source websites out there if you just do a search for satellites in the sky or something. And you put in your address, and it will tell you exactly what satellites are going to be going overhead at what particular time they'll be visible and where to look at them in the sky. So there's that map. There's also a map of showing the whole planet and all of the thousands of satellites that are currently orbiting and all the debris. And that's just amazing to, to look at. And the answer is, is that they're piling on more and more and more, and they're already coming out with a beta version of the Starlink constellation, uh, having launched already almost 1,000 Starlink satellites with another potentially 11,000 more to go. I mean, they're talking about saturating the sky just with Starlink, let alone the other ones. So they change all the time. And the last time it was changed was just a few days ago, when OneWeb, just coming out of bankruptcy, who had originally applied for 48,000 satellites, that was pending application, reduced their application to 7,000. So that number that we talked about, 80,000 plus 100,000, right now is probably closer to 55 to 60,000, which is still dug. 12 times more than all of the satellites functioning in orbit as we speak. And practically, they have a life expectancy of about five years, is that right? Five to seven years, and then in, in theory, they totally burn up in the atmosphere. Nobody really knows how good that's going to happen. So they have to constantly be launching more to replace the ones that have end of life. And that's their insurance plan is, uh, don't worry, they're going to burn up? <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> well, that's what all that's what all satellite insurance plans. Are. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry, Ben. Oh. <laughs> yeah, d don't worry. It'll burn up. Holy Christmas! Oh, that's right. As Julian is so fond of saying, Werner Braun Bond says, "What, Julian? You shoot the rockets up. Who cares where they come down?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. There are different ways to look at this. You can look at the immediate evidence of harm: past collisions, near misses. You can look at the, as I say, this extraordinary compounding cybersecurity risk, both for loss of operational control and, and privacy, or effects that we seem to be observing, some of concern in terms of bee reproduction, bird migration, the clear immediate damages to astronomical research and impairment of contracts, and then, of course, the human effects of putting these uh, these earth stations down with uh, either no radiation hazard reports as required by the FCC's own rules or defective ones that either are unsigned or uh, where the data looks contrived. All on top of all of that, there's the process part of it, the, the legal process. When the FCC covertly 
allows uh, an applicant to drop elevation from uh, 1,200 kilometers to 500 for for X number of thousands of satellites uh, and does it in a day without any public hearings, it really matters when you have a modification of elevation. But they're doing it, as they say, without any sensitivity to the dramatic impact of dropping. Even the, the FAA has become deeply concerned now about interference with air traffic. And so none of this is right before our eyes is happening in a regulatory or non-regulatory sense. Uh, so this is immediate. Uh, it's not something that is somehow out there. And we must always remember that the terrestrial part of this is intimately tied with what's happening in outer space. You can't have satellites unless you have ground control, mm -hmm. at least at present technology. Right. So uh, there are direct and immediate impacts on populations, none of which expose populations, none of which have any say in what is this. So what we're trying to do in our, uh, it's called a petition for emergency expedited rulemaking. And what we're saying is that the FCC in the most stark way has to follow international and federal law. That's the most basic. And until it does so, it must pause. Now, in terms of the experiment, what they've approved already, treat it as such. So let's find out, has there been any harm? Is there opportunities for innovation? How can we mitigate whatever harm is committed? Can we get insurance? Let's do all the fundamentals now. We're not asking them to claw down the satellites. That would be unreasonable. But pause. Let's think about what we're doing, and let's examine vigorously alternatives. And we believe that is a winning case because it's not just the petitioners. And I would say we have now strong support for something called the Healthy Heavens Trust from 50 different countries, for 80 organizations, thousands of individuals, so forth, all over the world. Uh, we've written a declaration, which many have, have signed. We have, we're beginning to have strong support at, at levels of government in Australia and Japan. Uh, this is something where the FCC, if it were enlightened, and it, it very well may become a more enlightened a agency under the present Biden administration, could say, we see it as an opportunity. Thank you very much. Let's, let's all work together and do it right. But I do have real hope, because our whole spirit of this is not antagonistic or belligerent. It really says this is a deep, complex, it's often called a wicked problem. It's a tragic choice between, do you want to have electric cars? Do you want to have rural broadband? Or do you want to sort of stop this and kind of go back to the, the, the 4, 4G Stone Age? Don't and the answer to that is no, of course we don't want that. But there is a balanced solution which will save millions of lives and prevent probably these next wars in space uh, where uh, if, we, if we think this through the way Einstein, Albert Einstein suggested, you know, we cannot solve today's problems the same kind of, I insert the word, primitive thinking that we've had up till now. We need new ways of thinking about these complex problems, and they deeply are complex. Uh, but it, it's, and it's not as though we don't have an existing framework of international and federal law to help us. Right. And we have goodwill from countries around the world. We can solve this problem, but not in the way we've been doing it up till now.
You've been listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guests have been attorney and author Julian Gresser and technology consultant Bent Levi. You can find out much more information about this at the website Julian has set up. It's called resiliencemultiplier.com. All one word, resiliencemultiplier.com. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Special thanks to our engineer, Michael G. Haskins, and to the brave and resourceful people at WBAI who keep this station going. We are all very grateful for your hard work. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be well, stay safe. Things are going to get better.